Welcome, dear listener, to Astonishing Tales of the Highly Improbable. I'm your host, Lloyd Allen, and this is the New Albion Orchestra. Episode is brought to you by Marcus's Mattresses. I thought we agreed we were going with one of the other two. There's a slime ball for a while. How could they pull out? No one tell me. All right. I'll read it. Today's episode is brought to you by Marcus's Mattresses. Marcus's Mattresses are widely agreed to be the, be the best in New Albion. I own one. I do not own one. Fine. All right. Until the check clears, I own one. And every night is the best sleep of my life. God, I, I do all the copy myself from here on in. Oh, fine, I'll, I'll be nice. Here, Marcus's Mattresses. If you're a crack addict, there are literally worse places you could spend your night. There. Our first season features a delightful little oddity we call Michael and the Monster, read by Pablo Shepra, part one. New Albion is a strange city in a world somewhat like our own, but several narratives over. A general history of its odd and troubled times can be found beginning with the pulp opera Dolls of New Albion. But here on this broadcast, we shall be exploring a number of periphery tales. To make matters more convoluted, we won't even be beginning in our dear fabled city, but somewhere quite distant. We shall begin in a swampland several hundred miles south and a few narratives away. Our tale begins with a little boy named Michael. Michael's family lived deep in the swamplands of Fortuana, in a house built on stilts in the green, muddy water. The air was wet and humid, and all manners of things lived in the waters beneath them, and babies and small children were lost to alligators with some regularity. Michael's family was not alone. There was an entire community living in that swamp, Everyone liked a little bit of space, so the houses weren't too close together, but if you rode your boat over a few miles of that dense swamp, you'd find what amounted to a neighborhood. Almost all the folks living there could track their families back about four generations. Michael's great-grandfather had settled there along with the others in part because the environment was hard to reach and dangerous to be in. They had quite liked the protection that the hostile surroundings offered. They were done with the outside world and had no qualms about killing anyone who came in there after them. Here is why. Michael's great-grandfather, Corey, was born in a faraway city called Mistopia. He had been poor there too, but extreme urban poverty is a bit different from rural poverty. Food cannot be hunted, and there exists a tangled web of laws that keep the poor from acquiring much of anything for free. His great-grandfather Corey never knew his daddy, and his mother worked as a seamstress, although after her long, soul-crushing shift was done, she would ingest her tincture of lithium and for the rest of the evening be out of reach. 
As Michael's great-grandfather grew past toddlerhood and started to near double digits, she became even more listless, missing more and more work, never ever leaving her dreamlike stupor. By nine years old, Corey was the sole family breadwinner. There were few ways for a child to raise money each day. Thievery was obviously a shining option, and Corey became quite adept at grabbing bread and picking a pocket or two. Collecting glass and metal was another, but his younger brother could do that. Selling newspapers on the street was the main way, but those jobs were highly coveted in the world of poor street kids. Corners were fought over with knives, and acquiring an inn with the newspaper distributor was almost as hard as entering a palace. Corey would sometimes steal a pack of morning papers at 5 a.m. when they were dropped off, then sell them several blocks away. He'd often have to fight for the corner, but if he won, the money was good. He didn't always win, and some days the trouble was just too much to go through, so some days he'd just hang out with some of his buddies. They had a little gang as they looked after each other and amused themselves by playing games and planning small-time heists. The concept of school never even entered their worldview. Corey's closest friend was a boy named Dokin. Dokin spent very little time in his own run-down flat due to a foul-tempered father with a drinking problem. He sometimes slept at Corey's, his mother being too out of it to notice, and other times may do here and there. Dokin had an eye for scoping out easy places to rip off, and often when he and Corey were just casually hanging out somewhere, he'd remark upon a suddenly spied opportunity. Another gang member was Greaster. Greaster was smaller, by far the fastest of the group, and prone to gossip, conspiracy tales, weird religious trivia, and paranoia. He was the only one of the boys who was literate. He'd been taught to read by his older sister before she had run off to be with a small-time mob errand boy with dreams of moving up. Greaster was the smart one, who always knew odd details, both useful and useless, and also the kid who you handed a hot potato off to when you needed someone to make the final mad dash. Tab and Gore were the other two. Tab was the oldest at 14, smoked like a chimney, and could already hold his own with alcohol. Gore was the muscle. He was big, brawny, and had a serious interest in military fighting styles and weapons. It was he who had insisted that the gang needed to learn group fighting techniques, like the more serious militias did. There were gangs where such a suggestion would have caused offense, as it would suggest that the others didn't know how to fight. But Corey's gang was young and smaller than a lot of the kids running the streets. They were sharp enough to all know that they needed whatever advantages they could get. On the upper end of Mistopia were a number of wealthy investors. There was a glut of untamed land and a continent across the sea, and they were bankrolling young venturists who were willing to set up plantations over there and go into heavy-duty agriculture. These young venturists were often related to the older investors, often enterprising young men trying to marry their daughters, or aggressive young lions best aimed somewhere where they posed less risk and promised maximum reward. These young lions who set up and ran the plantations, uh, pardon me, agricultural initiatives, needed an enormous labor force. And this being an investment, the investment would reap the most reward if the labor force was paid as little as possible. But where to find a willing labor force willing to relocate? Where, where indeed? 
Thus began the self-worth initiative. All those poor street urchins, doomed to a life of laziness and poor self-esteem, could learn to find pride in themselves through honest work. Thus, the city instituted a series of bi-yearly sweeps. Twice a year, the police would sweep through the ghettos and slums and scoop up every able-bodied youth they could grab. Corey and his gang were smart and resourceful, and had they known about such a practice, they would have taken steps to avoid it. Alas, they were caught in one of the first sweeps. They just assumed they were being nicked for some trivial thing when they were herded into the police wagon. However, instead of going to the station, they were taken to a warehouse and placed in large cages. By the next morning, these cages were full with youths ranging from 8 to 18. The warehouse was hot and humid. They were given no food and no water. The youths were angry, hungry, and prone to violence on their best days. Numerous fights broke out. A number of girls had been rounded up as well. The thinking was that while they weren't as valuable as field labor, the males would need the companionship and relief that coupling would provide. Also, since this was a lifelong assignment, there would need to be a next generation. A 16-year-old in Corey's cage laid claim to a 12-year-old girl sitting beside 11-year-old Corey. She spat at the older boy, so he backhanded her. She growled and poised to fight. Before the fight could begin, Corey leapt up and jabbed his hand into the older boy's neck, taking him down immediately. The older boy's crew, also inside the cage, were less than pleased. They rose and began to walk over to Corey. Gore stood the moment Corey had attacked the older boy, and now Doken, Greaster, and Tab stood too. There was a definite height difference, and the advantage did not favor Corey's gang. Corey glanced over at the girl. I can take care of myself, putter, she hissed. Corey nodded and turned back to the threaded hand. In his world, what she had just said hadn't been in the least bit rude. You couldn't acknowledge weakness. Hey, she added. If you have a knife, you should give it to me. I'm right good with it, and it'll go down better than you think. And if not, I could fall next to worse than you. Corey did, in fact, have a small piece of sharp metal the cops had missed when they frisked him. That small piece was his personal best insurance, though, and he was hesitant to hand it over. She could see the uncertainty on his face. I'm Maisie, and I'm not making boast. Odds aren't good, and we need every smart move we can make. Trust me on this, and I'll have your back. Promise. Maisie, Corey, he said, and as he shook her hand, he palmed her the shiv. The older boys attacked. They were bigger and hit harder. They did more damage when they connected, and Corey's gang took a lot of pain that night. However, Corey's gang had two advantages. The first was that they actually operated as a team. The older kids just fought chaotically, every man for themselves. Corey's group employed group tactics thanks to Gore. They knew how to come in from multiple angles simultaneously or on signal for one of them to play the vulnerable, easy target so that when the attacker went in, they were suddenly hit from behind or blindsided. The second advantage was that Maisie wasn't lying about her knife skills. Although her skills weren't like someone who had been trained with a blade, they were like someone who had been trained in theater. See, Maisie was from a stage family. Folk theater, music hall entertainments, and vaudeville-like acts were her family's bread and butter. 
Maisie had learned sleight of hand, juggling, and magic tricks since she could crawl. Her knife skills weren't about form or katas. They were about making her opponent believe the knife was in one hand, with one particular attack coming, only to find it was in the other, which was already at your thigh or coming at your ear. The fight was vicious, but at the end, bruised and bleeding, Corey's crew was still standing. Maisie had a dazzling black eye that was almost swollen shut, but she grinned a wide, feral grin at Corey, and from that moment onwards, she was as part of the gang as if she had been there from the beginning. When she grinned that grin at Corey, teeth crooked, eyes swollen, blood crusting around her freckles, he had never seen anything more beautiful in his life, and it was at that moment that he fell in love. The next morning, all the kids were herded out of the warehouse and onto ships. The ships set off for a far-off land across the sea where the kids were dumped out to begin their new lives as indentured servants. I'm sorry, independent labor specialists at their new agricultural initiative. They worked to pay their room and board and to pay back the cost of their transportation. The transportation bill they were saddled with was staggering and the interest was catastrophic. The average time it was estimated it would take to pay it back was 30 years. Plantation life was as unpleasant as it's made out to be. The agricultural sector of the new colony was completely enclosed, and that's where the workers lived. The owners lived outside the enclosure, and a well-armed security force acted as go-between. The kids rarely ever left the enclosure, but a few, for various reasons, were sometimes allowed out into the nearby town, accompanied, of course. It was usually the girls, and it was usually to warm them up for the inevitable advances that were coming their way from the Ventralists or their frisky offspring. The next five years were hard and miserable. Most of the stories are unpleasant ones, and we'll skip them. The indentured workers bonded tightly, and Corey and Maisie entered puberty as thick as thieves, even though Maisie blooming meant trouble since she was bound to catch the eye of one of the Ventralists' entitled, hormone-ridden, spoiled offspring. It was Greaster who discovered the creatures living under them potato plants. Under the potatoes, one would sometimes find these soft black-and-white balls. Greaster would get weird ideas in his head and do odd things to try them out, which led him to spend the night in the potato field. That's how he discovered these balls were actually tiny little creatures who curled up like that to sleep during the day. Most of them lived in little tunnels under the fields, but some would be above ground when the sun came up. When this happened, they would curl up under a potato plant and fall into a deep slumber until sundown when they'd uncurl and resume activity. He brought one in one day and told the others to watch and to wait. After dark, sure enough, it uncurled and became this tiny little humanoid-like creature, soft and gnome-like. It was rather apprehensive at first, but offering it food did the trick. It spoke an indecipherable language, but Greaster worked hard to befriend it. After this, it came by the shack some nights, and over time, Greaster learned how to communicate with it. It enjoyed smoking Tab's tobacco and burrowing in Maisie's hair. It even brought friends who would come by on occasion, and they'd all smoke thick tobacco while staring at the gang and chirping amongst themselves. The key point of interest was when Greaster told the gang 
the creatures had told him how to make a monster. The cute little creatures had survived the coming and going of various predators because they knew the secret to making a little black monster that was lethal and enormously difficult to kill. The monster they made was their size, but a human version would be human size. The gang all looked at each other. Obviously, whispers of escape were always floating around, but all attempts since the ship had arrived five years before it failed. They were in a literal prison. They had rioted numerous times in the beginning. Many had tried solo attempts, and many had wound up beaten, flogged, or had their feet cut off. Real hope was a dangerous commodity. Greaster went on to explain the catch. Making the monster required a blood sacrifice. Someone had to die in order to make it. There was a moment's hesitation, then Corey was the first to volunteer. Maisie slapped him silly, while Dokin, Tab, and Gore all volunteered in unison. Greaster was the only one who couldn't, as he was the only person who could walk them through the ritual. If the ritual worked, they would need the other workers to be ready to fight. This meant sharing the plan, but even here there were spies and snitches looking to gain favors by reporting rewardable information. The gang talked it over and came up with the plan. They would tell a few trusted people to spread word about an opportunity that was coming very, very soon. Little more was to be said other than they'll know it when they see it. Thus, if it failed, nothing was lost. And come time, they'd all draw straws and let fate decide. In the meantime, Greaster set about learning the ritual. Three nights later, they met. Greaster had drawn all sorts of crazy symbols around the shack. He had assembled a number of bodily fluids in jars and placed them in circles of chalk he had drawn. A pungent smell of thick astoya smoke filled the air, and he had brewed a foul mixture that was to be drunk by the Chosen One as they bled out into a bowl. The ritual lasted six hours, and at the end, Greaster presented the straws in one hand and the sacrificial knife in the other. They all took straws, and Corey drew the short one. Maisie gasped and started to make a tear-filled sound, but Dokin stepped forward, grabbed Maisie, and suddenly kissed her. He held the kiss for a few seconds. Then he looked at Corey, grabbed the knife, and slashed himself, as earlier instructed. As he bled out, he wolfed down the concoction, retching as he did so. The floor beneath him was pooling with blood, and at last he fell into it. As he died, he vomited and finally lay still in a foul pool of blood and vile. There was a moment of silence. The gang stood utterly still, staring in horror at what had just happened. Then the noise began. A high buzzing sounded, and from the windows and ceiling, the creatures poured into the room, hundreds, thousands, until they streamed in and collected on Dokin's body, covering him. It was impossible to see what they were doing exactly, but smoke rose from under them. The smoke smelled hideous and filled the cabin. A low rumble shook the ground, and a deep ripping sound suddenly tore through the yard. The smell became unbearable, and Gore was the first to hightail it out the door, followed seconds later by Tab, Maisie, and Corey. 
Finally, Greaster stumbled out as sounds of deep clanging, unearthly ripping, and clangorous booms thundered through the field and shacks. Everyone ran out of their homes to see what was happening, and as the entire village of indentured servants stood outside together, staring at the smoke pouring out of the gang's shack, something could be seen coming out the doorway. The thing that walked out was blacker than night. It was an utter absence of color. It was black with long, dangling arms and shuffling cloven legs. It was hard to say whether it had fur or soft spikes, but it shuffled out of the house and everyone stepped aside to make way as it trode through past the cabins to the walls that fenced them in. The walls that faced the village where their betters sat in their comfortable houses. The manor where their master drank wine and thought of money and was now issuing orders for security to go down and find out what in God's earth was happening. The walls where guards were shouting even now and drawing guns. The monster screeched. All those watching held their ears. The sound was so unpleasant. And then the monster scurried up the wall towards one of the guard towers. Then the bloodbath began. The path of devastation the monster left in its wake was chilling. It sliced through everyone it ran across. It killed guards, security, and tore through the master's house, leaving nothing alive. It killed workers who were fool enough to get within a hundred yards of it. It left a bloody trail through town and finally disappeared out the other side, to where no one knew. It didn't kill everyone. Plenty of townsfolk survived, and some security that hadn't actually engaged the monster survived too. But it was enough. The workers escaped and ran. Some ran one way, some another. Some were shot, some weren't. Some were hunted down and brought back, some weren't. Some died out there, choosing poor directions that offered nothing but hardship and death. A contingent that included Corey, Maisie, Greaster, Gore, and Tab, however, made it free and walked for about three weeks. They walked until they made it to a terrible area where death easily awaited anyone not careful. They walked until they were deep inside the swampland, and then they settled down, built themselves a little village, and for decades afterwards, killed anyone who ventured near. Well now, wasn't that delightful? Each episode, to top off the festivities, we will have a number performed by one of the members of our new Albion Orchestra. So sit back, relax, and here's your cover song for today. I'm feeling raw, I'm in the prime of my life Let's make some music, make some money Find some models for wives I'll move to Paris, shoot some heroin And fuck with the stars You man the island and the cocaine and the elegant cars 
This is our decision to live fast and die young. We've got the vision. Now let's have some fun. Yeah, it's overwhelming, but what else can we do? Get jobs in offices and wake up for the morning commute. Forget about our mothers and our friends. We were fated to pretend. We were fated to pretend I'll miss the playgrounds and the animals and digging up worms I'll miss the comfort of my mother and the weight of the world. I'll miss my sister, miss my father, miss my dog and my home. Yeah, I'll miss the boredom and the freedom and the time spent alone. There is really nothing, nothing we can do Love must be forgotten, life can always start anew The models will have children, we'll get a divorce We'll find some more models, everything must run its course Choking our own vomit and that will be the end We were fated to pretend We were fated to pretend To pretend